True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 37, The Screwdriver Rapist. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to thank our new Patreons for the week. A huge thank you goes out to James Ramsey and Nicola Cruz for signing up to support the show on Patreon. I am hugely grateful. I'm putting the finishing touches on our very first Patreon-exclusive episode, which will be released in the next few days. So if you want to be able to access that very special episode and also support the show, I'll leave the Patreon link in the show notes. If you prefer a once-off method of support, we also have a PayPal account that you can use to make a once-off donation. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media are all great ways to help keep the show growing and improving. The case I chose to cover today is an older one. The crimes stretch from 1971 to 1989, a time when the death penalty was in place in South Africa. It's a story that's been legendary among South Africans for decades, and not just because of the intense terror that swept across the country when this man was active, but also because of the way he was stopped. It's a story of a survivor who stood up for herself and in the process stopped a seemingly inevitable cycle of violence and death. My sources for today's episode were predominantly the book Famous South African Crimes by Rob Marsh as well as several research websites and one press article. Let's get into episode 37. The screwdriver rapist. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. William Frederick Fandamava was born in 1951 in Kew, Johannesburg. His mother Mary cared for William and his eight siblings, and his father Thomas was a driver for Johannesburg tramways. When William was 15 months old, and his mother was pregnant with her tenth child, his father was killed in a motorcycle accident. It would be this sudden and unexpected death that seemed to set little William's life on a downward trajectory. Mary gave birth to her youngest child, John, seven weeks after her husband's death. The older children would say that Mary seemed to lavish this youngest child with tension, perhaps feeling guilty at the fact that he would never know his father. Some would say that this was William's first experience of being ignored, or feeling less than another. And while I'm sure that, as for any child, 
it's not easy to no longer be the youngest in the family. I can't think that with there being eight other children before him, Mary was ever able to give William a huge amount of attention anyway. Of course, at this time in history, very few women worked outside of the home, and with ten children to care for, there seemed to be very little opportunity for Mary van der Merwe to support herself and her children as a widow. Very often, what would happen in situations like this is that the woman would set out to find herself a new husband, but with so many children, it also seemed unlikely that any man would take on such a financial burden. Mary received a small amount of assistance from charities, but she eventually accepted that she simply could not care for her children, and the younger ones were sent to living care homes. At just two years old, William and his younger brother John were sent to a children's home in Pretoria, while the four oldest children stayed with their mother, and the other four children went to live in a children's home in Johannesburg. Sadly, when William's older sister married at 16, she came to fetch their youngest brother John to live with her, and left William in the children's home. There was probably a very good reason for this, and honestly, if she could only offer one of her siblings a future, it would be understandable that she'd offer the youngest a chance. I mean, the other option would have been just as disappointing to the child left behind. William would end up spending four years in the children's home until, when he was six years old, his mother had managed to work her way back into the black and had a council house in Bertram's Johannesburg. And she, she, brought, William, she brought William home to live with her. The book by John Marsh says that, by this time, anger and resentment had already taken hold of him. While this is certainly not the ideal childhood, I don't see that anyone really abandoned William or let him down. Both his mother and sister were just doing the best that they could in pretty bad circumstances. Perhaps William, in his child's mind, didn't see it that way. Or perhaps all of these circumstances were adding to what was already inherent in him. William was enrolled in a new school, and for some reason, although the children's home hadn't realised it, the school picked up that he had severe learning disabilities. He tested at an IQ score of 90, which is really pretty average. Most people have an IQ of between 85 and 115. A psychiatrist assessed William and found that, despite his normal IQ, he seemed either unable or unwilling to learn to read and write. William's behaviour began to escalate, and he was unruly, cheeky and disobedient. It was decided that he would need to attend special learning classes in town, and William, at the age of seven, was given bus money each day to attend these classes. He skipped most of them and used the money to go to the cinema instead. Not receiving his special classes, he still could not read and write, and as other school children began to realise this, 
he became the subject of bullying and ridicule. Anger built within him, and he started a criminal career at the age of nine when he stole his teacher's purse. Not long after, he told his mother that he didn't see the point of going to school anymore. He said that he couldn't read his work, that the teacher ignored him, and that his classmates laughed at him. As a situation on its own, this is rather sad. If I think back to many of the kids I went to school with, almost inevitably the ones that were deemed the naughty kids were also not very good academically. At the time, you assume, and likely many parents did too, that they aren't doing well academically because they're spending their time getting up to all sorts of mischief. The truth, though, could be quite the opposite. And I don't think it's uncommon for children like William, who struggle with the standard academic setup, to feel like they're stupid or they don't fit in, which results in them acting out. What's needed is for the child to receive individual attention and to be taught in a way that fits their own way of thinking so that they can find their talents and skills. Sadly, many girls and boys who are not suited to an academic environment, but forced to be in it, will take these self-esteem issues with them after school. Most find ways to be happy, though. They heal from this unnecessary hurt, for the most part, and find things that they're good at. Most of them don't become what William did. William van der Merwe was 13 years old when he first came to the attention of police. He had started to break into houses and was now not going to school at all. He was sentenced to three cuts with a cane, which in 1965 was still a valid means of punishment for juvenile offenders. Proponents of corporal punishment will be very unhappy to hear that this didn't deter William and he was arrested again when he was 15 for housebreaking and robbery. This time he was sent to Tukai Reformatory School in the Western Cape. Tukai Reformatory was initially built in 1892 to house boys who were struggling in society. It was initially called the William Porter Reformatory, and it continued to house boys until relatively recently when it was officially closed in 2000. Now, most reformatories or juvenile facilities of this nature don't have the greatest reputation, and that's possibly because very often children who are simply acting out or have committed petty thefts will be in the same building as deeply disturbed and violent children. And this very often leads to less rehabilitation and more trauma, making the juvenile offender worse rather than better. This is a general view, of course, and not specific to every facility like this. I did a bit of research into this particular reformatory and found that its building is now abandoned, and it's listed as one of the 12 creepiest abandoned prisons on a Pinterest page. The photos of this building are seriously creepy. One shows a message etched into the wall that reads, When I do good, 
no one remembers. But, end quote, the boy never completed the rest of the message. The buildings are now completely dilapidated, but the heavy bars on the windows and metal doors stand testament to the fact that these children were clearly ready to escape at the drop of a hat. A stack of thin paper-like mattresses stands in one corner of a room, and I wonder if kids really had a single good night's sleep on those things. The forest around it is slowly starting to reclaim the building, and plants and vines grow through cracks. It really is quite strange to look at that place and wonder how many souls moved through there and where they are now. One resource I looked at claimed that several former Takai reformatory boys eventually ended up in maximum security prisons. William spent 18 months in Takai reformatory and then escaped and went to live with his sister Flora who was living in Cape Town with her husband. By now, William would have been very close to 18, so it's likely that authorities saw fit to leave him be, for now at least. For a while, William lived his most normal life ever. His sister and her husband had a carpet-laying business, and they hired William to work there. He also met a girl during this time. The young woman was pregnant with another man's child, and the man was not in her life. William fell deeply in love with the woman, and perhaps saw his chance at having a family of his own. The pair moved in together for a short while, but it appears that William's idea of what their relationship was was very different from the young lady's. She had no romantic feelings towards William, and viewed him more as a friend, This became devastatingly evident to William when he discovered that the woman was seeing other men. After an apparently violent confrontation, the pair split up and William sunk into a deep pit of anger and frustration. Again, many paint this as a watershed moment where all the alleged feelings of abandonment built up within William and something deep inside him shifted. I struggled with this concept when I first looked at this case, because William wasn't physically abandoned. Yes, he was taken to a children's home and left there by his sister, but his mother maintained a relationship with him, and when she could, she came to fetch him. I realised, though, that, firstly, we can't always understand how other people come to feel what they do, and also realise that it's probably possible to feel emotionally abandoned, even when you haven't been physically abandoned. Regardless, what happened next was in no way understandable or excusable. William would later say that his interest in violence towards women sparked in a single day on the streets of Vereniging. He saw a girl that he found attractive and tried to talk to her. The girl had no interest in him and ignored him flat. William described feeling rage bubble up within him, and he pulled out a pocket knife and flashed it in front of the girl. 
He said that the intense fear that he saw reflected in that girl's eyes was the first time in his life that he'd felt powerful. He soon became addicted to that feeling and would follow women on the street, in parking lots and stairwells. Sometimes he would just follow them and get a thrill from their fear as they realised he was following them and would quicken their pace. He began to work his way up, and soon he was grabbing at the woman or exposing himself to them. He revelled in their fear and the power it gave him. Many of these women had reported these incidents to police, though, and soon William was on their radar again, although his identity was unknown, until one of his victims spotted him on the street and called police. William was arrested and charged with two counts of assault and one count of attempted rape. The judge felt that William would benefit from having his learning disabilities treated so that his self-esteem could improve, and he hoped that by giving him a suspended sentence and mandating treatment for his learning disabilities, that both William and society would be better served than by imprisoning him. While I commend this judge for creative thinking, sadly with William it would not achieve the desired outcome. Instead, within months, William van der Merwe went completely over the edge. Between September and November 1971, 20-year-old William raped nine women and attempted to rape many more. He started to use a screwdriver, both as a prop in his ploy and as a weapon, and the media dubbed him the screwdriver rapist. A common ploy that he used would be to dress in overalls and pose as an electrician. He would then approach houses where he knew women were alone and convince them to let him in as he had electrical work to carry out. His youngest victim in the series was just 14 years old. One of his victims was a young mother, and he raped her with a young child in the room. The press covered each of these cases at the time, and women were terrified, fearing that anyone could be next. William's sister Flora had become just as aware of the serial rapist on the loose, and on seeing that the rapist had been seen in a blue combi, she put two and two together. She and her husband confronted William and asked him if he was the screwdriver rapist. As though he was only too glad to share his story, he admitted that he was, and accompanied by his sister, he handed himself over to police. This must have been an extremely difficult decision for his sister, and I think the outcome of William's trial must have made it even more so. On the 22nd of March 1972, William van der Merwe was found guilty on five counts of rape, four of attempted rape, theft and criminal injuria, and sentenced to death. His defence counsel immediately lodged an appeal against the sentence, which would be heard in Bloemfontein Court of Appeals, in 1973, three judges were tasked with deciding whether William van der Merwe deserved to be executed for his crimes, or if he deserved a lesser sentence, 
his guilt was not in dispute. On the 2nd of February 1973, two judges overrode the third and decided that William's sentence should be commuted to 20 years in prison. The judge who had voted to uphold the death sentence said, quote, Having regard to the number and premeditated nature of these crimes, and to the degree of criminality consistently exhibited over a considerable period, I remain unpersuaded that the sentence imposed by the court is inappropriate. End quote. One of the judges who voted to commute the sentence said, quote, What this youth needs, imperatively, is a good spell of discipline and training. Society does not require his extermination. End quote. I honestly think that that statement shows a complete lack of understanding for the nature of sex crimes and their perpetrators. And perhaps that's just a sign of the times where rape may have been viewed as a temporary inconvenience to a victim, rather than the devastating, life-changing, continuing trauma that it is. I don't have a good understanding of the sentencing options at that time in history, but it also seems strange to me that a death sentence in all its finality would be commuted to just 20 years with the option of parole. It's also clear to me that the nature of serial offenders was not yet understood by these judges. In the past two years in South Africa, we've sentenced several serial rapists with a similar victim count to William. The lowest sentence was 75 years in prison. Other sentences included 441 years and seven life sentences. So as much as we feel like our court systems are not doing enough to protect society from sex offenders today, they are clearly doing a far better job than we did in 1973. Imagine the slap in the face for those victims to have had the knowledge that they would never have to fear William Fundamaver again, only to have that snatched away within a year and replaced with the knowledge that, certainly within their lifetimes, he would be allowed to walk the streets again. Nine women who would have had to live with their experience for the rest of their lives, one of which would always have her first sexual experience be a rape, had to hear that the man who forced himself on them to feel powerful only did it because he was undisciplined and untrained. And now, for them, the nightmare would never end. William van der served 15 years in prison, where he underwent rehabilitation programs, and on the 1st of March 1987, he was released from Zonavata prison in Pretoria. In another failure of the system, the decision was taken not to advise the public or his victims that William had been released. He left the area and moved back to the Western Cape. As I was researching this case, I kept on finding these glaring parallels between the case of Moses Satoli and William's case. Both men had their fathers die when they were very young. Both had come from large families that their mothers were unable to raise on their own, and both had briefly ended up in the child welfare system. 
both had maintained connections with their siblings and started their criminal careers at an early age. Both Satole and Fandamava would express a deep hatred for women, and both would be jailed for rape and then paroled. Moses Satole left prison after his first incarceration with the belief that in order to avoid being caught again, he didn't need to stop raping. He just needed to make sure his victims couldn't talk after he raped them. Fandamava had the same idea. While we don't know exactly what William was doing for the two years between 1987 and 1989, I highly doubt that he was fighting his conscience. Although there are no recorded victims for him during that time, I would be very surprised if he didn't start hunting women within months of his release. We do know, though, that on the 4th of January 1989, he was ready to take his crimes to the next level. 19-year-old Theresa Mizen and 27-year-old Christine Lennon had spent the day on Musenberg Beach. They were headed back to their homes in Tamburskluf when a van slowed down in Sakai Main Road and a man offered them a lift. In 1989, it was not uncommon to accept lifts from strangers. Hitchhiking was very much still a thing, so it's not surprising that the woman accepted the offer. Unfortunately, the van was being driven by William van der Mava. Unbeknownst to the woman, William had a box of horrors in the back of his van, which included three sets of handcuffs, rope, rubber gloves, several varieties of exotic condoms, various sexual aids, and 29 screwdrivers. He'd also recently acquired a gun. Teresa would later report that she'd sat in the middle seat in the front and Christine had sat closest to the door. As they drove, William told the woman that he needed to stop off at a house in Constantia to fetch some papers before dropping them off in Tamburskluf. He stopped at the house and the woman waited in the vehicle. Within minutes, William was back at the van but this time he had a gun in his hand. He instructed the terrified woman to get into the back of the vehicle, and he handcuffed them and tied their feet. He told them that if they stayed quiet and listened to his instructions, they would still be alive when he was finished. William then drove the woman to a deserted part of Constantia Forest. He got out and, brandishing the gun, told Teresa that if she screamed, he would cut off Christine's breasts, and then he would do the same to her. He then raped Teresa Mizen. After the attack, he gave the girls cigarettes and tried to have a conversation with them, saying that he just wanted to have some fun, and when he was done, he would drop them off somewhere. He then bundled the woman back into the vehicle and drove around for what Teresa said felt like hours. William's eventual destination would be Hrabo Forest, which is about 40 kilometres outside of Cape Town. 
On arriving, he raped Christine in front of Teresa and then forced Christine to walk into the forest with him, leaving Teresa behind. She briefly considered trying to run away, but realised that she wouldn't get very far with her legs bound. So instead, as William walked away with her friend, she spotted his trousers laying on the ground and saw his gun hanging out of the pocket. Teresa rolled out of the back of the van and pulled herself towards the gun. She'd never in her life handled a gun and had no idea how to check if there was bullets in it or to cock it. Miraculously, though, she managed to cock the gun and climbed back into the vehicle, awaiting her attacker's return. About 15 minutes later, William returned to the van with a knife dripping with blood in his hands. Teresa realised in that moment that she would never see her friend again, and that if she did not act, she would be next. She rolled onto her side, pointed the gun at William, and fired. She would later say that she heard him sigh, and terrified that she hadn't hit him, she fired again. When she tried to fire a third time, the gun jammed. Against all odds, Teresa Mizzen's first shot had hit William van der Merwe directly in the head. Her second shot had hit him in the shoulder. She found a knife in the van and cut her feet loose and ran for the road where a passing motorist picked her up and took her to the police station. Within minutes of reporting her experience, Grabeau Forest was swarming with police officers. They found William van der Merwe barely clinging to life on the ground with two bullets in him. He was rushed to hospital but died just hours later. Police also found Christine Lennon's body laying in a pool of her own blood. She'd been stabbed violently and had bled to death. William had gone from being a rapist to being a murderer. But before he could take his second victim, Teresa had carried out the death sentence that he'd dodged 15 years before. When asked how she felt about having taken William's life, Teresa would later say, quote, There was nothing. There is nothing. It's as if it had nothing to do with me. I didn't even feel that he got what was coming to him. End quote. Teresa Mizzen did not just save herself that day. Although she would have had no idea who the man standing in front of her was, when she summoned her courage and fought back, she saved countless women. William van der Merwe had decided, as many serial rapists do, that dead victims don't put you in jail for rape. And I have no doubt that if he had driven out of Grabeau Forest that day, he would have become a serial killer. Considering that we had yet to develop any great investigative knowledge, about catching serial killers at that time, and also considering that we didn't have any form of DNA capabilities then, who knows how long it would have taken for him to be caught, and how many women would have lost their lives. Teresa also gave nine women, who'd been the victims of his rape, the peace of knowing that the monster that had haunted them was now well and truly gone forever.
I have no idea where Teresa is today, but I certainly hope that she's had a happy and successful life and that she's never lost a minute of sleep over putting a bullet in the head of William Fundamalva. Of course, I also thought about how William's family must have felt upon hearing that he was dead and the circumstances surrounding his death. I can't imagine how difficult that type of grief must be, because you will grieve. You'll grieve for the boy your brother and son once was, but you cannot grieve for the man he became. You'll grieve for what he meant to you as a family member, but that will always be tempered by the fact that he turned himself into a monster. I did a ton of searches on genealogy sites, trying to figure out what happened to the rest of the Fundamava siblings. I guess part of that was an interest in whether, out of ten children, many of whom grew up in the same circumstances, it could really be just one that found themselves on a dark path. Perhaps I wanted to try and either prove or disprove that nature versus nurture question, or maybe I just wanted to know how the story ended for the rest of these kids. The Fundamava surname is obviously very common, so I got lost in rabbit hole after rabbit hole. I did come across one profile, which I believe is the correct one, and it actually indicates that the sibling's mother was called Molly and not Mary. Strangely, William's sister Flora, who we know did get married, was listed as unmarried on many of these websites. William had no harder life than many others had. In fact, he'd had more opportunities than many. The difficulties he faced were largely of his own doing, and all of his acts of evil were choices. He could have taken the opportunities given to him to overcome his learning disabilities. He could have worked at his sister's business and built a life for himself. Instead, he decided that it was far better to enjoy the pain and fear of others, and he would have continued to do so until he was stopped. The justice system let down many, many women when they released William onto the street. Some were able to escape with their lives, but Christine Lennon was not so lucky. And so, where the justice system failed, Theresa Mizzen stepped in, 19 years old and terrified, and in fighting for her own life, she also ensured that justice was eventually served. Thank you for listening to episode 37, The Screwdriver Rapist. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight mini-sode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>